Welcome to the Intelligent Investing Podcast, where modern portfolio theory can suck it. A student of the school of Graham and Doddsville and a clergy member of the Church of Warren Buffett, here's your host, Eric Schlein. Hi, this is Eric Schlein. You are listening to the Intelligent Investing Podcast, and today we have uh, George Arison on. George, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Excited to talk to you. Yeah, sure. So, so where uh, where are you from? Uh, well, I was born in Georgia, the country. Uh, moved to the U.S. when I was fourteen to go to high school. Uh, spent four years in Maine, um, which obviously is very different from what I had been used to uh, previously. Yeah, bit. Uh, while going to, to prep school, um, and then went to college in Vermont, and then lived in on the East Coast for about ten years um, in D.C., and then moved to California. Um, almost like 10 and a half years ago. It's actually a really long time since I've been here, even though I still don't really think of California as home in any way. What, what, what feels most like home for you? Um, I still feel DC uh, is like kind of my formative years from the perspective of like becoming an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also really into politics. And so given I work in business, um, living in DC was always very fun because uh, you could still kind of live politics vicariously. Um, and then, you know, I, I think given that I kind of grew up in the U.S. and New England, um, that's also in, in many respects home as well. Got it. Cool. So tell us a little bit about what, what you do and what you started and, and you know, a little bit of overview about you. Yeah, so I'm, I'm a co-CEO and uh, one of the founders of a company called Shift. Uh, we're a marketplace for buying and selling cars, uh, shift.com. Uh, you come to our website and you can submit your car information and sell us your car. Uh, or you can find the car that you want and then buy it from us by ever having that car be bought online and, and then delivered to your home. Um, or having uh, a test drive delivered to your home prior to purchase uh, in markets where we have operations, which is most of the markets up and down the East Coast. Sorry, up and down the West Coast. Um, we are able to bring the car to you prior to purchase and then you can buy it um, at that point. Um, I mean, we're, uh, you know, a growing company, just went public um, through a SPAC transaction uh, a few months ago. Uh, closed Congratulations. It um, thank you. So it's been a, a whirlwind kind of 2020, uh, as it has been for almost everybody, because running a company and a business in this environment is quite challenging. But then when you added the transaction to it, it's been a a crazy um, 12 months, um, but we're really excited about where the business is um, and really excited about growing and, and bringing it to more consumers. Now, were you involved in the company before they went public or what was the story behind yeah, that? Yeah, I, I started Shift in um, 2013, 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had um, uh, moved to the West Coast, uh, to, to California in, in 2010 um, to join Google uh, in large part because I needed to have my green card be taken care of. Um, and the previous company I started um, called Taxi Magic, now known as Curb, um, had tried to get me a, a green card, but the government thought that I owned too much of the company uh, to qualify as a real job, uh, which I realized sounds ridiculous, but it is what it is. Uh, yeah. Uh, and so I had to go to a bigger company to to get my green card done, end up um, being fortunate enough to join Google and spend some time there. Um, and uh, while at Google, you know, started to think of different ideas that I want to pursue. Um, my co-CEO at Shift and, and uh, co-founder Toby Russell um, first had the idea that, hey, we should look at the automotive space. And um, and we did and spent a lot of time investigating it. Um, and eventually um, I left Google and started Shift um, and have spent pretty much every moment of my life other than uh, with my children working on this business. Uh, well, I want to unpack something. So, so you said your, your partner and his name is what? What's your partner's name? 
Toby Russell. Toby Russell. So Toby says, I think we should get into the automotive space. Where, where, where did that insight come from? Um, well, he, he, what he said was more like, we should look at this space and see if there's an opportunity there. So he had joined, um, we did Tax Magic together mm-hmm. um, uh, in 2007. And then afterwards, he joined the Obama administration while I went to Google. And then he um, joined Capital One. Uh, and while at Capital One, um, he, uh, you know, learned about kind of automotive lending because um, that's a big part of any any bank's business. Um, and that, you know, banks were completely ignoring the peer-to-peer transaction space. Um, so half the cars sold used in the U.S. are sold between individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really difficult to obtain financing for those transactions. Interesting. Okay. Um, so you can easily get a loan when you go to a dealer and buy a car from a dealer, right? Like it's kind of part, part of the course. But if you're buying a car from another person, uh, it's actually very tough to get financing. Um, really, the only people who underwrite that loan will be um, credit unions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you but don't why, have a why, why is that? Why would credit unions um, do it over It there? has to do with um, a kind of concern around clean title. Um, so the rates on car loans are very low in general, right? Like even with not very good credit score, you'll get a loan for way less than you would if you try to borrow money from a bank just kind of without an asset. And the reason is because it's a very secure asset and it's a very liquid asset, right? Like if, if you fail to pay your loan, the bank can repossess your car um, and it's very easy to resell it. So the likelihood of them losing money is very low. Um, and so um, uh, banks just kind of worry about how titles are managed in a private mm-hmm. party transaction. Is it going to be a clean title? That's number one. And number two, there's a risk of, of fraud between individuals, right? Like the dealer is on the hook to make sure that the person getting the loan is actually the person they claim to be. So like checking your you know, credit score, checking your um, license, checking your employment history, that kind of stuff. Whereas in a private party transaction, the bank would be on the hook to do that. And they're just kind of worried about that. Mm-hmm. Credit unions feel more comfortable with it because um, they have an existing relationship with a consumer usually. And so they kind of know who that consumer is. And so the, our initial thought was like, is there an opportunity in creating a financing product for this like non-dealer transaction? Um, we, both of us at the same time, had bought a car uh, kind of recently around when we first thought about this. Um, Toby had gone to CarMax to buy a car. He called up uh, Capital One and said, hey, I want to get a loan to buy this car from CarMax. And like, we can't do that. You have to go to one of our dealers to get a a car loan, which he found to be super kind of, you know, interesting that they would not finance even for an employee, uh, a, a car purchase when he was just trying to be a really good, you know, employee and make sure that he got a loan uh, from his employee. Um, and then I had uh, a car that I had leased and needed to get it financed to buy it out, like when the lease was ending. Um, and I couldn't get any bank to work with me when I would go directly to the bank, whether it was like my you know, main bank, whether it was the bank that had my mortgage, um, another bank that I kind of had a, lot, a relationship with all of them told me go to the dealer and you'll get a loan and i just kind of found that really really crazy like why am i going to a dealer in a car that i already have to get a loan when to do the buyout and so um those experiences plus kind of this insight around hey this private party market is completely ignored by the dealer uh, is what got us interested in the idea of um of automotive um and initially the focus was much more on like the financing side of it can you build a financing product um, so then I spent the next kind of year, you know, most of um, 2014, really, frankly, uh, or first half of 2014, talking to a lot of banks about this, like, can we do something uh, that will kind of address your concerns? And all the banks really pushed us in the direction of like, you know, we really need you to um, to own the transaction. Uh, we don't want you to um, kind of, um, we will not work with you to give you financing uh, for a transaction that you don't control. And so initially, we never thought of like being in the transaction business of like having cars to sell. 
But if we wanted to build a financing product that we had kind of envisioned, we needed to be in the in the transaction business. And so um, that's how Shift in its current incarnation um, developed. Um, the other piece here that you know was surprising in in many respects for me was. Uh, or not planned was the operational uh, kind of component. You know, you realize that you can't really sell cars effectively unless you recondition um, those cars prior to sale. And uh, today we run reconditioning facilities in every market that we operate in, um, you know, moving cars through reconditioning before they're sold. Um, we have actually two different tiers of reconditioning, what we call value and then certified. Um, and uh, that actually helps a lot. And we're able to sell a much broader spectrum of cars by having that. But again, like, you know, if you had asked me in 2014, like you're gonna have, you know, dozens and dozens of mechanics uh, to be working, um, you know, for shift, I would have been like, no way, right? That was not what I envisioned at all, but here right. we are now. Interesting. So then what was the progression of, you know, having this idea, kind of figuring out what you needed to do? How, how long did it take before you actually were up and running? Um, so we, I started working on shift kind of full time uh, in, I think, J- July or August of 2013. Um, and then, um, we incorporated the business in mid-December of 2013 um, and raised our seed capital and then um, sold our first car, um, like, you know, but the what car that we track like in our system was in yeah. June of 2014. Uh, I had sold some cars on my own before that just to kind of see what the experience was like. Um, you know, and this is in the early days, you know, we didn't have a parking lot. We were working out of my house. Cars were parked literally on the street in front of my house. Um, and so it was like not a real operation, but we're just kind of learning how to, you know, how to do the transaction or like, we sold, I sold a car to another person in order to learn what that was like. I bought a car from another person to learn. That was like, so we did like a dozen transactions like that, but I don't really count those as like official shift transactions. Yeah. And uh, we sold our first shift car in June of 2014. Um, so basically six and a half years ago. So how does that work when it's like, okay, we have, we have our first car we're going to sell. Like, how did they find your website? Like, how, how does that work? That, that Yeah. So um, we, um, we were really lucky um, because, well, I'm not publicly allowed to talk about it, but there was a kind of um, then don't don't talk about anything you yeah, can't publicly. No, yeah. no, we had this like um, kind of uh, really unique access to a bunch of inventory um, that we developed in um, in 2014, um, and bunch being like 20, 30 cars. So like we kind of collected a bunch of these cars in May of 2014 um, and had them, you know, parked at a garage um, in San Francisco. And now we usually like get ready to sell them. And so we basically took really nice photos of the cars and, and listed them on autotradercars.com and cargurus. Um, and now we're kind of the primary ways to get the consumer to know about us, right? We also were listing cars on Craigslist uh, as well. Um, and then consumers would kind of reach out to us and, you know, their expectation was like, okay, so I probably like, um, you know, have to meet you somewhere. And we're like, no, no, we'll actually bring the car to your house, right? Which was like a big kind of wow moment for the consumer um, mm-hmm. from shift because that's not something that anyone really expected. Um, and now when we say it, obviously people are not as surprised because we like have been doing it for a while, but you know, in 2014, no one thought of that. Um, and then, uh, and then would, you know, help the consumer kind of close the transaction, right? So like our initial probably a hundred cars that we sold 
people thought we were like just another person selling the car. Um, and, uh, and then like, you know, we would manage the entire transaction. And so it kind of surprised them that actually, you know, we would do that. Yeah. Um, we had a website um, and you could book a test drive on our website, but it was like super simple, right? Like, you, you know, you would put in your information in terms of where you want the test drive brought to, and that would send an email um, to us <laughs> to, uh, to start to take the car to you. And so I remember we were like sitting in our very first office um, which was like a floor in a in a townhouse uh, in the Castro, um, and the f- first time the email came, like everyone was kind of like jumping up and down. Uh, you know, yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, we have a real customer, so um, it was it was fun. Fun, but the the, the weird thing about this industry um, and and the space is that the dollars add up really quickly, right? Like you're dealing with items that are very expensive, and so you know early days of a business like oh i made ten thousand in revenue or twenty thousand revenue is like a really big deal but like right. i think we literally made twenty thousand in revenue the first car we sold right because it was like worth twenty thousand dollars and right. so yeah, yeah. um you kind of move on revenue really really quickly and, and it adds up really fast now what now where are you making money from where what's what's the model around that so in the automotive um, kind of transaction uh, business, there's really um, two core components to, to revenue. There's um, the metal itself. So like I bought a car for 20,000, I sold it to you for 22,000. Um, that's kind of shift commission on the car. Now we subtract every conditioning cost from that and get to the what's called front-end gross profit. Um, mm-hmm. So that's the money you make on the car itself. And then there's what's called back-end gross profit, um, which is the money that you make on helping people get financing, buy a warranty, buy other insurance products. Um, and that's like in a, in a normal dealership, that's by far the majority of the profit um, that a dealer makes. Um, and that's you know, true for us as well. It's like half of our gross profit uh, comes from the F&I. Um, the, the reason being that the, the metal itself is you know, mostly a commodity, um, not always, but mostly a commodity. And so um, the margin on the metal is not very high. Uh, and our whole concept is to give sellers more money than you would get in a trade-in. And so our margins even thinner than an average dealer because we give the seller more money. Um, and then, um, you know, we have to make up for that on the, on, the, on the F&I side, as well as in having lower cost structure, right? Because the full thesis of our business is you use technology um, as leverage opportunity for the business so you can have a lower cost base than yeah. a normal car operation. Got, got it. Now, are you guys still growing pretty rapidly or, you know, what's, what does growth look like right now in your business? Um, we are, um, we grew, you know, super fast in Q3. That's probably as, as, as much as I'm allowed to talk about since we're uh, not, we've not yet released our Q4 earnings. Um, but, you know, our projection for, um, for 20, uh, for 2020 second half of the year, so like H2 of 2020, mm-hmm. uh, was about 70% growth. Um, which we you know we were really excited about. Um, that's kind of public, and, and, and so I'm allowed to say that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, the business, look, used car sales online um, are less than 1% of total used car sales. Um, so it's like a massively small penetration in terms of digital transactions. Um, the lowest uh, kind of vertical in retail after cars is uh, groceries, which in 2019 was at 9%. Um, now, I think in practice, groceries are way higher than 9% today, given COVID, um, and cars will be higher than 1% given COVID as well, but it still will be a very small kind of single digit number. Um, and so the opportunity for growth is, is massive. Most other parts of retail, uh, you know, are in the kind of 30 to 40% 
um, digital penetration um, today, whether it's, you know, books or, um, you know, clothes, et cetera. So that's the goal, right? Like you want to get to a place where yeah. you're at least a third, if not half of the market is digital. Um, and I think cars are, you know, one area that hasn't really been disrupted in that way. And there's a huge opportunity to kind of move them in that direction. Um, so it's, it's kind of exciting that, uh, you know, COVID, um, as, as horrible as COVID has been for, for the world, um, yeah. for digital transformation, it's been a really powerful kind of, um, you know, opportunity. Uh, and so it's really exciting to be seeing our business, you know, demand being as strong as it is and consumers wanting to experience uh, our way of, of buying or selling versus the alternative, um, you know, because we almost like created um, this for um, uh, for, for the, getting it done uh, in, in a way that's completely touchless, even though we had no vision of COVID when we created it. Yeah, yeah. No, who would you say your your um your biggest competitors? Um, so, so there are two other companies that are in the digital automotive vertical. Um, I don't really view them as competitors, frankly. Um, you know, they're more like our peers because again, the market is so big. Uh, we are in no way like competing with them for consumers, um, and they're not competing with us, right? All of us okay. are, are kind of competing with a traditional dealer um, uh, for consumers um, uh, or for customers. But one company is called Carvana. You know, they've been public for a few years now and, and are doing very well and have really scaled um, really rapidly. Uh, and the other company is called Room. Um, they're you know different from us in both the user experience perspective um, and somewhat in the inventory that they sell. Um, for so for Room Carvana or, or Room? Both, both okay. Room and Carvana. So both of them, um, kind of their main product, as far as user experience is concerned, you you um, um, go to the website, find the car that you want, and then you buy the car site unseen. Um, yeah. and, and then you um, kind of, uh, you know, will have the copy delivered to you. We allow you to do that, like Shift does that as well. And, and you know, a reasonable portion of our users uh, will take that option. But we also uh, have the option, and our primary option is that you book a test drive and the test drive is delivered to your house. Um, so um, prior to buying, and then, you know, about half the buyers will buy the car at that point. Um, so that's one kind of big difference. Our business is more local as a result versus national versus their business is much more national. But we don't have this kind of huge shipping cost uh, to shipping cars uh, far away. So are you are you only dealing with certain geographical locations then? Um, we will ship a car anywhere. So like if you want, I, mean, I don't know where you are, but like if, if you're in New York, Philadelphia, you yeah. So if you have Philadelphia, you come to shift. Um, you buy a car from us, we can ship the car to you, like like Carvana and Room can. Yeah. Uh, we won't be able to deliver the test drive to you in Philadelphia. But if right. you want to have a test drive, you'll have to do it in the markets where we operate, which is like. Seattle, um, Portland, Sacramento, San Francisco, um, LA, Orange County, uh, San Diego. Mm -hmm. um, and we just started to buy cars in Austin and, and Dallas uh, recently as well, you know, with the assumption that obviously um, we'll kind of, you know, expanding to new markets over time. Um, uh, and so um, the shipping is available nationwide. The local delivery is in the more local specific markets, but kind of where we have um, operations. Um, uh, and then the other kind of big difference between us and our peers uh, is around, um, uh, you know, the inventory that we sell. So because we offer a test drive, we're able to sell older inventory. It's really tough to sell older cars if you don't offer a test drive. Um, and so, um, uh, so we kind of uh, facilitate that. Um, you know, in a, in a, uh, in, a, in a rapid, in a way that's unique. So we have cars that are like, you know, nine years old, 10 years old. Um, those cars are actually a huge part of the 
used car market. Um, like most cars sold used are actually older and at independent dealers, you know, like the mom and pop dealership kind of in a local town, mm -hmm. that's actually the majority of what's sold. Um, but there isn't really a kind of nice, clean, modern, technology-driven way to buy that car anywhere but shift. And so that's something that's very differentiated for us. Now, how do you look at um, like internal rate of returns? Like, you know, when you're growing, you're obviously not going to just spend unlimited money for growth. So is there some kind of target return you're looking at uh, for your return on capital when you're when you're growing the business? Um, we don't really think about it that way. I mean, okay. we, we think that right now it's a kind of land grab uh, situation. Okay. Right? Like, um, it's just kind of on the, you know, again, like 1% online penetration a year ago, last year in 20, 2019. Um, so kind of almost unlimited amount of growth opportunity. So for us, you know, we, we have a model that's kind of out there because when you do a SPAC, um, you know, we put a model out, out, out there. And, and so our model says basically double in 2021 and then, you know, we gave a range um, to basically double again uh, in 2022. Uh, and so our focus is on like gr growing top line in a pretty aggressive way, mm -hmm. uh, concurrently with improving margin, right? So um, we have a kind of mid-term target of $2,500 in gross profit uh, per unit uh, sold. Um, and uh, and, that, and you said that's a, that's a mid-term target or long term? Yeah, that's a target for kind of, uh, you know, Q4 of 2022. Um, okay. we, we think you can be much higher than that over time, um, but in terms of the things we're doing today and we'll be doing over the next you know, four, six quarters, uh, we think they're going to position us to be at $2,500 by the end of 2022. Do you, do you guys think about like, um, you know, what the business looks like at scale or, you know, what those margins would look yeah, like? Of course. I mean, look, like in my kind of ideal world, like kind of five years down the road or, or whatnot, you know, I'd be want to be selling a million cars a year, right? Or something mm -hmm. like that. I don't know if that's fine, five years or seven years, like we don't have a model that for, for far looking for external yeah. perception, but like I think kind of the realistic number I think about today is a million cars a year. By the way, it sounds like a ton of cars, right? And you're like a massive company at that point, but- Not, not really, only, I mean, it's a big market, right? Right, it's a thing, there were 45 million used cars sold last year. So like 1 million is actually a very small percentage of the 45 million. Um, and, and so um, the way we think about our business is kind of, we can do the localized approach like we've done in on the west coast markets in about mm -hmm. um, you know 40 to 60 markets around the country um and that will get us to about um you know 70 percent um coverage over the u.s population with the test drive available uh, to be brought to the consumer um and then uh from there you know everybody else will be getting the car delivered to them through a shipment but not necessarily a, a test drive um that's kind of how we think about covering the entirety of the country um we are not on a hey let's go to every market possible right away we don't think that's uh, necessary or uh, or advantageous um and so our model is a little bit more kind of careful in, in launching markets. Um, the piece that's dramatically missing for Shift today is brand building. Uh, mm -hmm. So we've now started to to build brand, um, you know, recently, like just kind of um, rebranded the business and uh, have, you know, developed television ads and will be on, you know, more aggressive brand push um, in 2021 in, a, in ways that we've never done before. Yeah. Um, and, and so we think that's going to really help scale the business as well. Um, and then um, the- And just of, remind me, you said, so let's say you were selling a million cars five years from now, hypothetically, obviously you're not making yeah. any promises. What what kind of margins are, are, are you guys looking at for, for you know selling a million cars five years five years out from now? Well, again, like our midterm margin target that we've talked about is $2,500. Okay. We believe the business can be profitable at that GPU number. Okay. Um, there is opportunity to be higher than that as well. Right? So the way, uh, again, we talked about GPU, right? There's a front Oh, you're breaking up. And there's yeah. back-end GPU yeah. and back-end is 
so, so there's two, two GPUs, front-end and back-end. Front-end GPU is um, the metal itself, back-end is, uh, is financing and, and, and warranty. Um, so our goal is to be at like $1,300 in financing and warranty through the model we have today where we partner with banks and warranty companies to mm -hmm. issue um, those products. Um, but um, you can actually bring some of those in-house over time. So oh, CarMax runs like a big capital financing business where 40% of the cars that CarMax sells are sold through a CarMax Auto Finance uh, loan. Uh, and, you know, whereas, you know, on a, when you forward a loan to a dealer, you make like three to $500 uh, kind of on that loan. When you issue the loan yourself, you make $1,500 on that loan right. uh, in terms of gross profit. Um, and so, um, you know, that's one way to drive the gross profit much higher than 2,500 bucks is by kind of having captive financing. Same thing, you can do a captive warranty as well. That improvement is not as massive. It's only like three, four hundred dollars improvement, but again, still you know significant in the grand scheme of what we're talking about. Um, so it's another area. And then thirdly, like today we don't sell service at all. So if you go to a dealership and you buy a car, um, you could easily you know um, be sold uh, uh, a service product where like all changes will be prepaid for and things like that. Those are actually very profitable um, for things for dealers to sell. We don't sell those at all, but over time we'll add those. Uh, to us as well. So on the back end side, kind of our midterm goal of 1300 bucks is very much a midterm goal. We think there's at least a thousand bucks or more of upside um, for what we want to do on, on the back end over, over the longer term. So, so if I'm a car dealer, right, if I'm running a dealership, I should be scared shitless of companies like you. Um, or no, look, is that not the right uh, No, I don't think so. So there's kind of two part answer to that. First, again, I think we've seen how traditional brick and mortar store businesses um, have both collapsed uh, out of, um, you know, kind of competition from digital, but also have done really well, right? Like Circuit City is no longer around, but Best Buy actually is doing great. Doing great, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's a good point. Um, and so we've had a ton of, you know, smaller retailers collapse, but Target and Walmart are doing great. Um, and so I think what you'll see is, you know, some pressure on the traditional dealers that don't innovate and don't move online. Um, but those that do move online actually will do really well. Um, because I don't think it's going to be like 100% of the market is going to move digital. Uh, yeah. It's going to be, you know, a third to half. Um, and then the rest will be consolidated in digital players that innovate and figure out how to survive in this kind of new world. Is there, is there room say? for some of those dealers to partner with companies like you? Yeah. So, so then that's the second part of my answer, which okay. is that like, you know, I uh, kind of, I'm a huge Amazon shopper, probably like you are and like most people we know. Um, and, you know, when you buy from Amazon, half the time you're buying products that are not sold by Amazon. They're fulfilled by Amazon. Um, right. Amazon does the charging and Amazon does the shipping, but the item's not owned by Amazon in any way. It's a third party item. And I think the same thing can work very well with, with Shift for smaller dealers. Uh, and so like what I really am excited about is an opportunity to kind of have the dealers list with Shift. Uh, and then for us to be able to take that um, listing um, and bring the car to the consumer for a test drive uh, that didn't originate on our lot, but originate on the dealer lot. Um, so and that way we will be exposing the dealer's uh, inventory to a totally new customer, right? Like today, if you're a dealership in San Jose, um, you only have customers coming to you who are kind of in the 20 mile radius of your store because people will not travel 30, 40, 50 miles to come to a store because there's another store closer to them that has similar inventory. But if the car is brought to their house, they don't mind how far the car traveled, right? Whether it's 10 miles and 20 or 30, doesn't really matter to them. Uh, and so suddenly we can bring a car to a customer in Marin that otherwise will never see a car um, from San Jose. 
because they won't travel that far, but if the car is brought to them, they will. And so we can bring a completely new incremental customer uh, to a dealership. Uh, so what our vision is not that we have every dealer in the given region listing with Shift. It's like select dealers that we want to work with that have really high quality inventory, high quality service. We can actually open up uh, consumers to them that they otherwise are not interacting with. Um, and, you know, when it's a win for consumers, it's a win for us, and it's a win for a dealership. So I think there is that opportunity. We're very excited about that. Uh, we've not kind of said, hey, we're definitely going to do this in a given timeline. That's not our goal. Yeah. Uh, we have a lot to do in the core business. But long term, I think there's a ton of opportunity to kind of head, um, head in that direction. Now, as of now, so someone like me that's in Philadelphia, um, is there any, you know, what, what is there any customer value proposition for someone like me uh, using Shift right now? You know, because I can't do a um, test. Yeah, I mean, you right? you have an amazing experience um, that most uh, people cannot offer you, right? Like Vroom and Carvana might offer you a similar experience, but not exactly the same. Um, and certainly, um, no dealer will be able to offer you the kind of experience that we have. Uh, in terms of just kind of the the user feel and then what you go through when you're on the site. You can apply for financing digitally on our website instead of having to sit in the back office and fill out a piece of paper and then having the dealer type it in and go through this like rigmarole. Of, and what about Carvana? You think it would be a better experience for me than going through Carvana right now? Being um, no, I think Carvana's and Shift's experiences are roughly on par in terms okay. of what the user goes through. Um, I think what the difference will be is that the kind of cards you can buy from Shift um, will be different from the ones that Carvana will have. How um, so? About 75% of their inventory will match our inventory, but we will then on top of that have cars um, that are older. So if you're looking for like a seven or an eight or nine year old car, Carvana and Vroom won't have those cars. Vroom definitely won't have those cars and Carvana will mostly not have those cars. Now, does, uh, the so does, the, does your customer already know that? You know, like how would I? Um, I think people, I mean, I think people do like, yeah. um, uh, you know, I think a lot of people think that, oh, when I'm buying a um, older vehicle that or so when someone's buying an older vehicle, they must be, they might necessarily be subprime, which is a massive fallacy, actually. We have, very few, sub, okay. we have very few subprime customers, but we have, we have quite a few customers who are like, you know, in the middle and lower income brackets. They might be extremely credit worthy, but they don't make that much money, right? And so for them, um, it's, it's unaffordable to buy a $20,000 car, but it's more affordable to buy a, a 10 or a $12,000 car. Uh, and so um, you, you have, uh, you know, you have a lot of customers who love the digital experience, but they just can't afford to buy a very expensive vehicle. And so we are there for them. Um, we also have luxury vehicles. And I mean, you can imagine like, the why you love service of like something shows up at your house um, for a test drive. That's awesome for a $40,000 or $50,000 Tesla. Yeah. But we want to have that experience be also available for someone who's buying a $10,000 car. Uh, and so for me, and that's really important for me because I think, um, you know, the awesomeness of technology that it really democratizes um, kind of high end product availability for everyone. Uh, and I think that's that's something that I really feel very passionate about, you know, personally, to kind of open up the more luxury experience for everybody else. Interesting. Yeah. So now you, you're this, there's this massive land grab, right, going on, lots of growth going on. How, how do you fund? How do you fund the growth right now? So we're really fortunate that after our um, SPAC merger and, and going public in, in October, uh, we are extremely well capitalized and we have a ton of cash in the bank. And, you know, we've been very judicious to in terms of using it. Um, historically speaking, Shift's always been 
um, kind of capital constraint compared to our peers um, mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons. Um, and, you know, the way we went about funding this business probably was not the most, um, you know, kind of the way you would have done it had I known all the things about the finance world that I know now. Yeah. But again, in 2013, 2014, I did not know that. Um, we should have probably raised more private equity money in 2014 and 2015 rather than venture capital style money um, for what it's worth, given the kind of business we are. Uh, but today we are really well capitalized and a really strong place. And, um, you know, uh, for once in seven years, I'm not thinking about when we need money next <laughs> and yeah. not focused on that, which is really good. All right. Awesome. Um, any other any other things that you think we didn't cover that you think just are worth talking about or interesting to talk about? Um, I mean, recently, you know, a lot of people have been talking to me about SPACs, right? Because I was uh, um, one of the first uh, CEOs to do a SPAC uh, this year and mm-hmm. probably the first Silicon Valley CEO to do a SPAC. Um, so people have been kind of asking a lot of questions around that and like why I think it's a good thing or or not, et cetera. Uh, kind of my perception on that is that yeah. SPACs have really opened up capital markets for a big slew of companies that still have a lot of value creation opportunity uh, going, right? Like uh, when an Airbnb goes public, like it's already created most of the value that it can create as a business. Um, That was not the case uh, before, meaning 15, 20 years ago, companies would go public uh, much earlier than they are going now. Um, yeah. You know, Salesforce went public was worth like half a billion dollars, and now it's worth like two hundred, right? So most of its value creation has happened as a uh, public company, not as a private company. But that's not the case when you go public and are worth immediately fifty or two hundred, a hundred million dollars, billion dollars. And so I think SPACs are really good in that they're enabling companies earlier in the process that still have a lot of value creation to go um, to come out into the public market and give investors access to that, which is, I think, fantastic. I don't think it was good for uh, my peers and, and me in the tech world to have these companies all be sticking to be private for a really long time. It was yeah. artificially done and not great. So this is really, um, really, really awesome. <clears throat> um, and so um, I think, uh, you know, that's been a really interesting development and, and it'll be interesting to see kind of how that grows in 2021. I mean, SPACs have gotten really popular, especially this this past year. I'm afraid, though, that almost due to this, I mean, it's like now SPACs almost have become a thing, right? Where it's like, I think in one hand, SPACs are really great for reasons like you said and, you know, helping companies like you go public. But I mean, now it's like half the shit out there is like absolute junk. I mean, I think a lot of SPAC investors might actually get really burned if they're just buying a bunch of things that seem very sexy. And 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 the other thing, too, is you look at the way some of these SPACs are structured and just massively screw shareholders. You know, I think that's a problem. I don't know about, I mean, I think it's actually, if you look at SPAC issuances, so mm-hmm. there's two pieces, but there's SPAC issuance, like SPAC being issued, and then there's a SPAC merger. There's right. actually not been that many SPAC mergers. There have been a few, few, obviously, kind of prominent ones, us, Open Door, a bunch sure. of us happened this year, but that's more like in the kind of dozen, two dozen uh, category for 2021. There's been many, many, like over a hundred SPACs. Yeah, I don't which, know how they're going to find deals. <laughs> yeah, we're just still looking for deals. And I think, you know, it's been interesting because a lot of them are on the larger side in terms of dollar amount raised, right? Like yeah. 400, 500 million dollars. And, and I think that that makes no sense. I think SPACs are actually best when they're in the 150 to 200 million dollar kind of size. Yeah, I'm, I'm, right, I'm right there with you on that. Um, so that's been really interesting. They haven't yet, you know, merged and are still looking for, for targets to merge um, with. Um, I think that um, what you want to look for uh, is, so, but one of the things that happened 
find is that actually SPACs have become more friendly to investors versus less uh, over time. Uh, yeah. For example, the Warren amount has gone down, et cetera, et cetera, right? Like, well, I think, been, Bill, um, are you familiar with Bill Ackman's uh, yeah. thing? Like, well, I think that's, I mean, like, that's massive, right? Like, I mean, it's a, I don't know who they're going to merge with. It's, right. it's way too But I think big. in terms of protecting shareholders, that's a great model that, yeah. that he put out. Um, but, but what I think is, um, you know, what, what people should be looking for uh, yeah. when they look at SPACs is quality of the issuer, right? Um, so, um, which is something that I, as a founder and CEO, kind of spent a lot of time thinking about when we were deciding who to merge with. And I think the same would apply uh, to any investor. So you want to kind of, I think there's two ways to think about qu high quality. And number one is a repeat issuers, right? Like people who have done this many times. And number two is operator issuers. Um, so, you know, uh, if you, there's a lot of data that suggests that repeat issuer returns are much better and operator run uh, SPACs have much better returns uh, as well uh, versus investors, which makes sense because operators know what to look for because they've been in the trenches. But like right. when I, I mean, I do seed investments, not late stage investments, and I have almost no market positions because I don't have time to think about that. Yeah. But when I meet with um, with companies, like the reality is I can sniff out BS uh, a lot easy, more easily than I think anyone who is not an operator can because I can tell what seems to me like, you know, real and what's more like blowing smoke. Um, yeah. And, you know, uh, and that's partly because I've been there and done that. And like, you know, when people come to me and tell me they have an operational business and, and, and then tell me it's not complex, I'm like, guys, like that's does not exist. Like I've been in operational business now for seven years and I don't think there's a thing in operations that's not com complicated. <laughs> uh, you can say it's complex and I'll figure out how to manage it. That's totally reasonable. But if it's like, um, you know, the, the thought that you will not, you will, it's not complex, uh, will not, uh, will not kind of fly by me. Um, and so I think those are the things I would focus on is like, are the, the repeat issuers? Um, there are, you know, a half dozen or so um, really good SPAC issuers out there. Um, and then secondly, uh, kind of looking at, you know, uh, uh, operator issued uh, SPACs uh, with that involve people who are either former CEOs or CFOs, et cetera, and or involve people in them who've actually gone through a transaction, right? Like um, that, that's another kind of piece of it. That's who, who are some of either the companies or individuals in the SPAC space that you really admire? And, and to be clear, you know, you're not giving any kind of investment advice, just people that- Yeah, I'm not giving any kind of investment advice or anything, but yeah. I look like- um, our SPAC sponsors were Betsy and Daniel Cohen. Um, uh, they've done a lot of SPACs. I mean, I think when we had uh, when we were talking to them uh, first, they had de-SPAC two companies, but I think since then they've de-SPAC like four more. Um, yeah. So it's, it's been it's been a lot. Um, uh, you know, Betsy is amazing, right? Like she she she's been in the kind of trenches as an entrepreneur for like fifty years almost, um, and you know uh, has taken almost a dozen companies public over her career, which I think is, is really amazing. Um, and, and frankly, like uh, having her with us was awesome. And I also learned a lot from her uh, in the very intense six months when we we're kind of talking to each other almost every day. Um, uh, so so she's, she's awesome. I mean, I think Chamath um, with social capital kind of SPACs has been kind of the innovator in the SPAC space in Silicon Valley, uh, meaning like um, when we when I first brought um, SPAC idea to our board uh, in uh, May of 2020, um, literally the only person in Silicon Valley who knew anything about SPACs was Jamal. Everybody else was like, what the hell is this? And I had to spend like, you know, weeks educating people on, okay, this is how the transaction works. These are the things you need to be uh, aware of. Um, now, once we did it and then a couple others did it, then it became a lot more popular. But like Jamal's really kind of 
been the innovator in the in the stock space for Silicon Valley as an issuer, uh, and obviously he has a ton of ton of stocks kind of out, out there um, that that are uh, that are outstanding. And then um, um, you know there are other kind of again, I think um, uh, looking at. Uh, SPACs that are repeat kind of uh, is really important. And, and then I think CEO led SPACs are also really good, right? Like um, the, 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 that to me is a, is an important point. Like for example, Nicola Damasi um, has been doing um, SPACs um, almost completely focused on gaming space, which is kind of what he knows um, really well. So I think he's the SPAC two companies and then has another one um, that's out there looking for a target now. Uh, again, like, you know, if you if you are in that, if you, that's your interest, right? Like you like gaming, et cetera. Like I know nothing about gaming. I haven't played online games or, or uh, computer games since I was yeah. like, 15. Um, but like, if you're into gaming, I think uh, that's an area where I would definitely kind of look at more as well. Interesting. Well, uh, George, it was really a pleasure uh, connecting and talking to you. And, you know, I wish you the best with your company and, you know, now being public as well. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Yeah. All right. Well, um, for people who want to learn more about your business, uh, what's, what's Shift's website? Um, shift.com is our website and I'm George Harrison at LinkedIn and uh, whatnot. Okay. And you guys have an investor relations uh, part of your website too? Uh, yeah, there is a investor at shift, uh, sorry, investor.shift.com is for I Okay. All right. Great. Well, George, it was a pleasure to have you on and uh, take care. Awesome. Thank you so much. All right. You got it. Thank you for listening to the Intelligent Investing Podcast with Eric Schlein. If you'd like to connect with Eric for questions, comments, feedback, ideas, or to inquire about being on the show, please contact Eric at intelligentinvesting at gmail.com. So, in the words of Charlie Munger, I have nothing to add.